If wind and solar don't wreck the energy grid, emerging quantum computing sure could. Brownouts here and there could turn into a sudden national catastrophe. For how the federal government can help prevent this, we turn to the head of cybersecurity at Quantinuum, Duncan Jones. Mr. Jones, good to have you on. It's great to be back, Tom. Nice to see you. The grid is of concern to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And quantum, those two things coming together seem to scare them, and I guess it should scare all of us. What is the issue with quantum in particular and the grid in particular, and what is CISA advising these days? So if we talk briefly about uh, quantum generally, um, the threat that we face from emerging quantum computers is that they will break many of the encryption schemes that we rely upon today. And we've seen a flurry of announcements and guidance out of um, the U.S. administration that's really encouraging agencies to start taking this threat seriously and to begin preparing to migrate to newer cybersecurity approaches that will be resilient to this threat. Now, the reason why it's particularly relevant to critical national infrastructure is because in these sorts of environments, if you imagine here, we're talking about power grids, we're talking about systems that could be 30, 40 years old that are getting connected up to the internet as part of this sweeping digitalization that we're seeing in, in many industries. These systems are deployed in the field for, for decades. You know, they, The return on investment makes sense if they're there for 20 or 30 years. And therefore, these systems need to be built on a cryptographic foundation that can stand the test of time. And during that time frame of 20, 30 years, we're going to see quantum computers emerging that can break the encryption that we use today. So it's particularly important in this sector that these migrations are planned and are, are carried out effectively. Otherwise, you know, the nation is at, is at risk. Now, I have two questions. One the operating systems and the applications used in critical infrastructure. And you see this all the time. Sometimes the grid operators have rather old applications and infrastructure to run it on. You see this when subways flood and they find relays that were put in in 1964 and this kind of thing. Are those applications and the data associated with them even encryptable by modern algorithms? Yeah, the good news is yes. So, you know, there is a process going underway at the moment in, in various industrial settings to bring these systems online. And it has to be done carefully. And what it typically relies upon is that you have, this is where edge computing as a concept comes in, because you need to connect these, like you say, steam powered sometimes systems to the internet. So what you tend to do is you drop something into a, a plant um, that is like a you know relatively modern piece of kit. And it then talks to all of these systems and kind of mediates between that place and, and the rest of the world. And so what we're talking about here when it comes to the quantum threat is, can we make sure those sorts of control systems as they're being introduced are future-proofed? So they're ready to address the threats that we know about today, but also these ones that are coming down the line, including quantum. Right. So in that architecture, the encryption lies between the internet and the ancient operating system and applications, in other words. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it varies, of course. Um, and, and obviously, new systems are being deployed all the time. We're seeing you know, a wonderful increase in solar and, and wind energy. And these systems are being developed and deployed today. And in those systems, it's far more sophisticated. You'll see those devices themselves connecting to the cloud and sharing information about what they're doing. 
And but even there, we need to see that those security choices being made are are future proofed. So we need to be both ready for the quantum threat and also you know, potentially embracing quantum as a tool to help us keep those systems secure. Sure. And not to get too deep into the weeds, but again, getting back to the older systems, is there any plan or do you see the practice of people rather than running the old software, somehow abstracting it and running it in an emulation system, which could then change the architecture and change where you need to apply your encryption? Yeah. So in this industry, there is this practice known as digital twins, where what you, you often try and do is in the cloud, you want like a shadow image of what's on the on the plant floor. So you want to have this model of your steam powered, you know, generator turbine thing represented digitally. So you know what's happening. And if you make a change to the digital version of it, it gets reflected in the real life. What that boils down to is that you need a connection that you can trust between the cloud, let's say, and some industrial plant buried somewhere in in an inaccessible location. And that all sits on top of encryption and and trusting that we've seen recently in the world, you know, when when global powers, you know, come together and and joust over territory, cyber attacks are real and the ability to disrupt power grids and and things that really can bring a country to its knees, they're going to happen in the future. So this this is why it's so important and why I think CISA has kind of specifically called out this area as, as somewhere that needs to focus on being quantum resilient. We're speaking with Duncan Jones, head of cybersecurity at Quantinuum. And recently, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, issued a set of what it called quantum proof encryption algorithms, which they believe that even the future coming of quantum computers can't crack. Does this solve the problem? Are we home free here if everyone would simply adopt those algorithms? It's certainly a big part of the solution, yes. Um, These algorithms are based on mathematical problems that we don't actually think quantum computers can solve any better than traditional computers. So this is why they represent a, a solution here. The challenge is that just kind of deploying these algorithms is something very difficult. So moving from what we have today to effectively, you know, very different underpinnings, it's a huge effort. And the starting point for many organizations is simply to understand what do they have today? You know, not all of their data is equally at risk from from the quantum threat. And so what many organizations will need to do and what CISA and recent security memos have, have stressed needs to be done is a lot of planning. Like, what do you have? Where are you using cryptography? Where does your data need to remain secure for like five or 10 years? You've got to understand that first to begin making the transition towards being quantum safe. And then these algorithms represent, I would say, one half of the challenge. The other half is how do we make sure that we even have good encryption in the first place, good encryption keys? And that's one of the areas where actually we can start to use quantum as a as a positive force to help us develop encryption that is genuinely going to stand the test of time. What's your sense of the state of quantum computing? Does anyone say Russia, probably less Russia, the chance of them than China, but do they actually have a real quantum computer that they can throw at cyber hacking yet? Or is that 10 years off or maybe never? Well, it's, it's interesting you should mention China because um, Baidu recently announced their own superconducting quantum computer. So it's clear that countries around the world are investing heavily 
in this technology. We don't believe anybody today has a quantum computer that's actually powerful enough to start threatening encryption. But that time will come, and we may not know exactly when we've, we've reached that moment. And perhaps more worryingly, there is this risk that the data that we're exchanging today can be captured and recorded by these sorts of uh, countries we may not want to, to have access to it. And as their quantum computers develop and mature, they will be able to retrospectively decrypt it and have a look. So this is another one of the reasons why federal agencies need to take this seriously, because they are the sorts of organizations that share secrets. They share things that need to still be secret in 10 years' time or 15 years' time. Right. I get the sense that a good strategy then would be to learn how to deploy those quantum-proof algorithms. You said that's the most difficult task at this point, but you're going to have to face that at some point. So why wait till the devil is knocking at the door? Maybe now's the time to get familiar with them and get some body of knowledge on how to deploy them before you have to. Yeah, absolutely. And this very much echoes the guidance that's emerging. We have maybe 18 months or, or two years before this NIST process that you mentioned earlier fully standardizes and announces, you know, this is exactly how we do this, this, um, these new algorithms. That is the window of time in which organizations, you know, public and private, need to get their plans in place and need to start doing testing and exploring how can they be ready for the quantum threat? How can they use quantum as a tool? How do they just, they just need to get their you know, ducks in a row because, yeah, we're a couple of years away from being able to pull the trigger for this stuff into production and people need to be ready. And maybe the second implication is that it's a good time to review your basic systems architecture so that you can maybe simplify and, and apply the encryption in a efficient way, let's say. Yeah, no, very good point, Tom. Yeah, so there's, there's a buzzword in the industry, the cyber industry, of crypto agility, which describes you know, if a system is crypto agile, it means that it's not a big deal if you change algorithms from time to time. Many of our systems today are not crypto agile. And so this transition period is going to be painful. But if we approach it in the right way, as you, as you suggest, we could make sure that future transitions are far easier. So yes, yeah, a very good point. And a final nerd question are we making progress in the concept of encryption while data is in use by the processor? It's, it's an active area of research. Um, it, it used to be something that was very, very slow, and therefore it wasn't particularly appealing to people. But there have been advances recently that mean it's starting to become more feasible to you know, operate on data that is completely encrypted. It means you, you never have to decrypt in the first place. Right. That was my yeah, question. Yeah, I expect we'll see more of that emerging in the future. So someday we'll be able to send those quantum computers into endless loops. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, endless loops, entanglement, superposition, anything's possible with a quantum computer, right? All right. Duncan Jones is head of cybersecurity at Quantinuum. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to that CISA guidance. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.